The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. And this is Jasper Johns. And again, you know, knowing what you know now, uh, this is the connection to the mandala and the whole idea of being a part of the tradition of that Suzuki phrase that kind of set a lot of things off. One thing is no more important than another, but also the whole idea of oneness, of wholeness, of, of the experience. And wedding it with the acceptance of contemporary culture. Because that's one of the things the pop artists were doing, where they were saying, you know, here we are, this is us. And they, at that time in the uh, late 60s through the beginning of the 80s, were putting rusty stop signs, Coke bottles. Um, Robert Rauschenberg set up in the, it was also in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, what he called a quarter-mile wall. And it was inspired by Borbador. Very, very interesting piece. You walked into this space that they constructed, and it was a, like an aisleway. It was a, a U-shaped uh, space. And all the way up the wall on both sides were collages of a lot of his old shirts and ties and kitchen equipment and, and grates from grills and just everything you can imagine. And for about the first maybe 50 feet, they were all just natural. And then as you went along, they were, they were painted white, then more white. And when you got around the other side, everything was white. They were still the same kind of objects, but everything was white. And it was that same kind of experience. So you start out with colors and objects and you're, you're kind of looking at all the objects. And you're saying, you know, well, what is that? You know, that's a toaster, that's a shirt. <clears throat> but then you got around to the other side. <coughs> so... Um, in that context, and then Bruce Nauman, his statement is, the true artist helps the world by revealing mystic truths. And his work, he studied at UC Davis with um, William Wiley. And his work was what was called minimalist. He used a lot of installations with very minimal uh, objects or light he used a lot of neon light there was one room I saw one time he did uh, that there was just a white light around the whole edge of the ceiling and and that was it but the it was and then another one where there were two rooms one had a little plaque and it said imagine yourself in the next room and then go take the place that you imagined so you walked into the next room and so it, it really plays with um, concepts. It plays with what is truth, what is the mind. And uh, I did, I was a undergraduate when Bruce Nauman was a graduate student uh, there. He's not older than I am, but it's just that <laughs> I was going to school a little bit later in life. Now, you might all know Yoko Ono. And during this period of the, um, the 70s, this is October 971, Yoko Ono with John Lennon as guest artist will have a show titled, This Is Not Here, to commence at the Everson Museum, Syracuse, October 971. Yoko Ono wishes to invite you to participate in a water event one of the events taking place in the show by requesting you to produce with her a water sculpture by submitting a water container or idea of one which would form half of the sculpture. Yoko will supply the other half. Water, half, water the sculpture will be credited as water sculpture by Yoko Ono and yourself. The sculpture will be displayed lasting the duration of the show. Now, 
uh, I do recommend if you want to have some fun, go to Yoko Ono's website and there are what they call instruction pieces. Did anybody see the Yoko Ono show at the Museum of Modern Art here? Uh, that she had some of those which were really fantastic like you know just imagine something and, and that's your work of art well during this period she was part of a group called the Fluxus group and they were all very much about strategy to teach the Dharma to allow people to experience the, the direct, a direct experience that was their mission to allow people to have a direct experience and uh, so there was nothing left I mean it was total process nothing but process at that time and shortly after oh well maybe in the beginning of the 80s um, she started doing bronze sculpture and somebody asked her at a conference once no they asked John Baldessari but um, about her work too and they said, well, you know, you guys were doing all this minimalist art and you were doing all these performances and all these pieces that were so pure and there was nothing left. And why are you all of a sudden doing like bronze sculpture or photographs of the things? And he said, because people like stuff <laughs> and we have to leave stuff. So um, they they kind of shifted their their process now this is William Wiley who talks about the universo tease and running into Mr. Nobody again uh, and it's part of that whole uh, series on form and void and when all is said and done Norm is really Lloyd uh, so he has very often in his paintings and drawings uh, what he calls the watcher or Mr. Nobody uh, that often takes the uh, physical um, structure of his own body. He's very tall and lanky. And the, the, another flung ink painting by Liang Kai uh, influencing the 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 same type of of influence the relationship between the form and the void and this the um, hakuin uh, the finger pointing at the moon um, I don't know if I did copy that poem If anybody wants to see the link to Yoko Ono's website, I have a printout from there. Well, this isn't the exact poem here, but it's a similar one that um, is repeated on a lot of um, Zen paintings. The body is the wisdom tree. The mind is a bright mirror in a stand. Take care to wipe it all the time and allow no dust to cling. Fundamentally, no wisdom tree exists, nor the stand of the mirror bright. Since all is void from the beginning, where can dust alight? And this, again, very uh, influential to uh, the, the flung ink tradition and the uh, Dharma statement here, be as aware as a blind man crossing a dangerous bridge. This is an example of a uh, part of a, a Zen garden and the textures and the relationship and this is the very carefully arranged and quite um, stylized 
form uh, compared to sometimes what what you might find inside. And here's a path um, through a Zen garden, and here's the the kind of natural columns that are used, and the care and the refinement of all of the parts of the whole Zen tea ceremony. If you the rock here, for instance, that this rests on, there there's no cement. There's no glue that are used. The, the wood pieces fit together. Uh, dowels are sometimes used, but it's all um, found and arranged. And that idea of the found object uh, also became very influential and important to uh, contemporary artists. And this is Eric Orr, who uh, lives in Venice Beach. Uh, and this is bone cast on natural wood and it uh, has a relationship to the kind of spontaneity and the natural process of just casting the bone and letting it rest where it it lies and also with the idea of the I Ching and this is the Rothko Chapel again just to give you an idea of the aesthetic and the the kind of continuing influence and the interior of a a tea house. What is interesting, I hadn't seen this, I've seen this slide probably a million times. Uh, This painting in the back that the in the Tokonoma almost reminds me of a Mark Rothko. This is another example of the Tokonoma area and the influence of the um, tea house was extremely important to Richard Diebenkorn. Uh, does anybody, everybody know Richard Diebenkorn? He uh, definitely well worth, and his motivation was to create, he did a series of woodblock prints in Japan with uh, master printers, master Japanese printers, and this is, this is one of them. Uh, it probably has 28 colors, and it's just nuanced, blue over blue over blue and again when you spend time with it the depth and dimension and kind of vibration of the color it it actually changes as as you watch it and as light changes this is just to show again the uh, difference organization of space that was um, extremely important if you look at the works of Richard Diebenkorn and uh, some of the minimalist artists that came after the abstract expressionist you'll recognize the the uh, forms the other fascination was the Japanese garden the idea of the precision of the raking and the relationship of microcosm to macrocosm that in the small microcosm of the garden area you had the whole variability of the universe the 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 opportunity and uh, one person who was extremely fascinated with that is David Hockney and um, here he is in the time period when um, I had the privilege of working with him uh, in the uh, mid-80s. And he was very involved in looking at uh, not only Asian art, especially Chinese painting, but um, also talking about the connection between right brain, left brain, and the, the kind of chance to merge the two and and have insights and so he would wear like a black sock and a red sock and he had glasses made that one side was tortoise shell and one side was gold so that it he he just as Andy Warhol said if you can't do a work of art you got to be a work of art well Hockney was a work of art as well as doing it and he did a whole series of photo collages um, at the Rianji Garden in Japan uh, and made the point very interestingly about any this is also the garden and any place you stand things change everything changes all the time he was very fascinated with not only the aesthetic of Japanese art and culture but also the the whole concept of impermanence he was very much working with it at that time and working with photography and the problem 
of photography in what it feeds back into our consciousness. Because he would say, you have a a photograph, which is a two-dimensional surface making you, giving you an illusion of three dimensions. And so therefore, you think that that is real. And he would point out that if you look at a mark of infinity in the one point perspective diagram and you are here and infinity is there and he said if infinity is God you and God will never meet so he he did this whole dog and pony show for about four years going around the world literally giving this talk about the danger of believing your illusions And when he did these photo collages, it was to show that the photograph, and when it evolved, and this is in terms of process, he was in the 70s doing a series of double portraits, life-size pictures of two people facing each other. And he would do the portrait at the person's place and take some pictures of what he called the background. And he'd go back to his studio and he'd try to paint and he had to keep going back and taking more pictures because what he had wasn't giving him the information that he needed to paint the rest of the picture. So he ended up laying out this whole photo collage all over the studio floor. And then he'd glue them together and then he realized, what is photography doing? What, you know, how do we see? How, how does this really happen? That reminds me of the other statement I wanted to make in the beginning uh, to, to kind of set the, the intention that we used to say, you look with your eyes, but you see with your brain. And so when this content comes in and you are conditioned to see the photograph as this or a work of Western art and I can't tell you how many times when I'd be teaching the history, the survey of the history of art, and I'd get to the 20th century, they'd say, well, that's not real. What is that? You know, it doesn't make any sense. My kindergarten brother could do better than that. And so then I'd show them a 19th century painting of, you know, it was, there was this one I used to use all the time, which was this, this figure in a studio, a, a portrait of a male nude. And I'd say, okay, what are you looking at? Because they'd say, well, that's real. <laughs> and I'd say, what are you looking at? A two-dimensional surface making, giving you the illusion of three dimensions. So reality is illusion, isn't it? And that kind of, but the, the danger that Hockney was talking about was that we believe, like we see something on television or we see a photograph or we, we believe it. We believe it is real. And so the, he said he would say also that, you know, if you have an accident and somebody takes a picture, they'll use that as evidence. But if somebody does a drawing, they won't accept that. And a lot of times the drawing is more real, more accurate to what is really there than a photograph. So that got into a whole other uh, aspect of, of investigation and practice. And this... Uh, whole series he did of prints the process um, was really remarkable each one of these uh, squares is probably about two and a half by four feet and the um, process was designed by Ken Tyler where the artist goes to the studio and there's a frame made and there's a um, kind of a a stand on wheels that goes by and they use a a hose jet that has color in it and they have they can connect all different colors and they do this this color on the standing on this big big thing as it rolls back and then after it's all finished it's run through a press and it starts out about this thick and it goes down to about that thick of paper and and color And the whole idea is that all of these layers of color are embedded in the paper and but the end image is just everyday emptiness, just everyday, uh, the the, the everyday potential, uh, 
there's all kinds of talk he does about uh, reflections and color and the whole idea of reflection itself. And Muchi, the six persimmons, the um, absolute Leonardo da Vinci work of uh, Japanese uh, culture, they revere this work as we think of Leonardo and they only take it out once a year, but it's actually a Chinese Zen painter. But this conforms to their highest ultimate praise for a work of Zen painting and it's called variety in sameness and the the variety I mean I've looked at this work so many times and sometimes I've tried to bring it up in my mind and do it and I'll do like this one will be solid this one will be a circle and it's like you can't remember it and along those lines this is John Baldessari and it's called throwing balls into the air best of 36 tries and it's when he started taking pictures of uh, the performances that um, they were doing. And this is Philip Gustin later uh, in his career when he started doing these almost landscapes of merging uh, different forms, shoes, Stonehenge, whatever, that, whatever came up. And this is just called Horizon. But he was really, at this point, having fun. It was like, you know, just setting anything out there. Again, anything has the potential for sparking that insight. And this is Nam June Pike. Now, the interesting thing about um, Nam June Pike is a Vietnamese-American artist. And the interesting thing about the whole process of the Dharma in American art is that in the early stages there were no Buddha images you didn't see any images of the Buddha there were I mean you had a rare time when Sai Twombly wrote Om Mane Padme Hum on the canvas but all of the intention behind the work was to lead the viewer to direct experience to teach the Dharma to talk about uh, emptiness to talk about impermanence and they didn't put an image of the Buddha in the work and that the I think it's a very fascinating partly also I'm not really sure that was one question I'm sorry I didn't put on my list of questions I asked every artist and that is whether it, there was a commercial problem with it. You know, if there was an image of the Buddha, maybe a gallery wouldn't sell their work or whatever was going on, But um, although I doubt it. Because I think that um, it was a time for looking at the pure teachings in terms of direct experience. And, of course, the Zen tradition doesn't have a lot of images uh, it has the tea ceremony and the tea wear and uh, the Daruma images. But once you get to the mid-80s, you start to see the image of the Buddha in works of art. Nam June Pike, a Vietnamese-American artist, was chosen as the um, American representative to the Biennale in Venice in 1995. Um, and here is a real true uh, conflation. I mean, he has TV screens with things constantly changing. In the background is a, a kind of side reference to the walls in the caves in India and Afghanistan that have the 10,000 Buddhas. And down here are, is the uh, contemporary version of the, of the 10,000 Buddhas, the, the kind of stamp again and again. The, and the uh, idea of revealing the whole dramatic idea. So he is embedding the Buddha in American culture and in contemporary Western culture. Uh, and this particular image, which is interesting, is called Original Face. And it uh, is very telling of... Um, the, the more contemporary work uh, 
it's a work by artist Lindy Lee. It was done in 2001. And um, I'll read you what she says about this. The first koan I was given as a Zen student was, what was your original face before your parents were born? It was an auspicious beginning, given that the questions underlying all of my work deal with what self is and who I am. My use of portraiture has been part of the investigation. The foundational belief in Zen Buddhism is that form is emptiness, and emptiness no other than form. For me, one of the great existential questions that arises from this is how any sense of selfhood can proceed from emptiness. There are two Buddhist stories which richly demonstrate the essence of what selfhood is and what portraiture should convey. The first tells of how King Bimbisara of Magadha commissioned a portrait of Shakyamuni Buddha but found that no artist could convey the dazzling vitality of the Buddha. The Buddha then seated himself beside a still pool of water and directed the painters to paint his form as reflected on the water's surface. The second is a Zen story in which Chan Master Dongshan asked Master Yunyan, if, after many years, someone should ask if I am able to portray the Master's likeness, how should I respond? After remaining quiet for a while, Yunyan said, just this person. Dongshan was lost in thought. Yunyan then said, teacher of wisdom, Having assumed the burden of the great master, you must be very cautious. Dongshan remained dubious about what Yunyan said. Later, as he was crossing a river, he saw an image reflected and experienced a great awakening to the meaning of the previous exchange. He composed the following song. Earnestly avoid seeking from without, lest it recede far from you. Today I am walking alone, yet everywhere I meet him. He is now no other than myself, but I am not now him. It must be understood in this way in order to merge with suchness. So starting in the, the 80s, really, the, the end of the 80s, that, that koan, what is my original face before I was born or before my parents were born, uh, was also circulating and created a lot of um, lot of um, excitement and um, influence on a lot of the artists. Now, Robert Arneson, who did a whole series of works about his own face, uh, said that he was doing that in the same manner. He was people that look at Arneson's work say, "Oh my gosh, what a big ego! He did nothing but self-portraits." And a lot of his works are titled self-portraits. But a lot of the works that have titles that he put on them are really koans. And so his, um, he really uh, considered his teaching uh, really sometimes, depending on the student, he was really remarkable and taught until just before he died and he had... Uh, just a terrible cancer that he had like 37 surgeries for, but he just kept teaching and kept kept pushing his students. And uh, he uh, said that he would try to find out what your nature was and then use that, you know, against you so that <laughs> it would, it would uh, kind of fling you into a, a direct experience. And this very um, fortuitously also came uh, in the mail the other day from a friend of mine who's the director of the art museum at the University of Colorado Boulder and they just had an exhibition of contemporary Tibetan art so these are the next few are Tibetan artists oh yeah that's uh, some of them are living here. Some of them are uh, various. <laughs> Who's that guy? I, I forgot what. Is that the Incredibles? The, 
the Simpsons, everybody, everybody's there. I mean, <laughs> this is like almost like a visualization of what Philip Guston was saying when you start to do your art, everybody's there, all the comic strip <laughs> characters, everybody, and when it all merges it, <laughs> when it's gone, even you are. Okay, how do we get you back? Ah, and this is Namjoon Pike again, the Buddha contemplating himself. And this is an installation at the Whitney Museum in New York. And I don't think I have to say much about that. And this is, um, again, uh, Bruce Connor. Got to remember the title of this. This is a 1974, The Sound of Two Hand Angel. <laughs> and it's a photogram. He used his own body to interrupt a projected beam of intense light. Sensitized photographic paper is unrolled under a red filter light projector. Silhouette determined, filter removed, paper exposed turns black. So again, the process of the, the trust that's another word that was very, very common among all the artists that I interviewed was just a trust in the process and no planning, no expectation, no idea. And if that isn't a true example of the shift in paradigm of the reason an artist works, the way they work, how they work, why they work, um, is really I think um, a major difference and I really think that that is probably why contemporary art visual art is so difficult for uh, Western culture uh, I find more Europeans somehow get it <laughs> don't know why um, and this is um, this is actually um, an Australian artist, uh, Tibetan of Tibetan origin, living in Australia, and the the teaching, the message is that everybody has a Buddha nature. This is Wallace Berman, and um, this is a 1970. It's a Verifax. Um, and it's based on, it has all different kinds of images that are um, like old photographic images being held in the camera. And the idea behind his work is the repetition, the mantra, the repetition of images uh, instead of words. Uh, the, the whole combination of visualization and the mantra practice he was very fascinated with and used. Um, he uh, is, I think he's of Israeli origin. And uh, so he uses multicultural um, imagery in his work. But he uh, was a very uh, considered uh, Zen practitioner. And this is another of the Tibetan artists. <laughs> And this reminded me of uh, Rinpoche, Anam Tubton's uh, Santa Claus uh, mandala or Sankara. And here we are again at the Eastern Serenity. The, um, it also might reminds me of a Henry Moore. <laughs> but it's, it's really interesting uh, how if you look at what the Asian artists are doing today. Uh, they're really using a lot of the stimulation and influence of Western art. Uh, and in many cases, it's really interesting. Um, they do it better <laughs> because they understand. I mean, in, in the very beginning with abstract expressionism and with uh, pop art, um, there was the sense of... of struggle to to understand and the big 
big problem was the difference between form and void and the kind of abandonment of the fixed idea of an object and the the working through of getting rid of the object and dealing with the void because um, many times uh, abstract expressionist artists would say well I'm dealing with an active void I'm dealing with dynamic equilibrium with uh, with color space time uh, and that's the subject the subject is impermanence the subject is dynamics so um, it's a revelation to a, a, probably people who are involved in art or who are practicing art understand it uh, critics don't seem to and one of a friend of mine um, said it was interesting that during a, he did a lot of writing um, on uh, Jackson Pollock and on his also his connection to Jung and he said it was really interesting that uh, artists in the 40s and 50s were reading Jung and critics were using Freud to analyze their work and that Jung was an artist and Freud was a collector and so it's a very different mindset to looking at a work of art whether you're looking at it from the direct experience or you're looking at it as an object as, as a material object so curious have you seen the current exhibit at the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in San Francisco the one about in response to the Dalai Lama a lot of different Western, I think, artists primarily. I haven't seen it yet. No, I've heard about it. I have not seen it. I, I'm hoping it'll still be there when I <laughs> get, get around again. I'm sorry, I, I'm a little slow. Can, can you, could you summarize this? I mean, you, you mentioned Dada, surrealist, abstract expressionist, pop, conceptual performance. I'm not sure. Fun, I'm not sure what's left of the 20th century. Is your thesis that all of 20th century art is influenced by the Dharma? Is that is that is, is that a fair soundbite? Yeah, for, it it truly is because 21st. Uh, and and you could probably add um, consciously or not. Uh, with some artists because um, the their teachers you know some some artists who are maybe not directly practicing uh, Buddhism or uh, a spiritual tradition uh, were taught by artists who were and so when their their whole conception was was formed and the reason they're doing their art and they will say that they're about doing direct experience they'll use all a lot of times we use all the language of the Dharma and yet uh, I remember I interviewed one artist and I said um, you know I was doing this project and I asked him what you know could he answer these questions I had 25 questions that I I asked every artist I interviewed and one of them was a list of their reading list of their of the books and so he said well I don't know how much I can tell you about this and I mean I knew from his work what he was doing and I knew you know that he had an, an acquaintance with Zen and so I went down the whole list of books he had read everyone and then I talked a little bit about you know what what the project was he goes well yeah I guess I'm there <laughs> so um, it's it's really very much like the culture as a whole in the sense that you have a very sophisticated thought system philosophical system of the Buddhist thought and you have Western thought and you have the two mixing kind of and they're not like oil and water you know they're 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 forming this solution and that is what happened to Buddhism as it went into every culture and that it it literally changed the um, what was there before and some was very dramatic like Japan I mean the Japan the aesthetic the Zen aesthetic the um, the whole although now you know what what is happening is the Western 
culture has gone over the top and has kind of started filtering down. And in fact, Alan Watts, I think it was, who said, uh, it won't be too, he said this in the 60s, it won't be too long before if you want to experience uh, Buddhist meditation that is closer to the original source, you can go up the hill in Marin County or out of Santa Cruz and if and you'll go to Japan and you'll see these guys running around in three-piece suits with pocket watches being the ultimate capitalist. And so it's it's really interesting how, you know, how that happens. But yeah, back to the original question, the uh, I would say that because of the nature of what art is and how it's done and what is going on that the influence is everywhere so how far back would you push this is this picasso Seurat, oh yeah yeah. oh yeah um well there are um i found not too long ago some um writings uh from van gogh's brother that talked about him reading a lot of the zen poems and um of course they were influenced the the impressionists were influenced by the forms that, you know, the Japanese prints, the, some of the ceramics that were coming in. There were these um, antique shops in Paris and London that they used to hang out and go and look at all of the um, different textiles and prints and works. And they would um, pick up some of these and talk among themselves, get all excited about the differences. And you can see in each one of them uh, what they picked up in terms of the form, the ideas came in a way to them, to the Impressionists. The, the, the flow went from the ideas, from the form to the ideas. And then they, they began to look at space and start talking about voids and things in a, in a very different way. So that was the very beginning. In fact, of course, the, the physics of light was influencing the Impressionists. I mean, they were painting light. And once you start painting light and you realize that, you know, things are impermanent, then that part of the the Dharma was very attractive. And then once you get into uh, the Dada and Surreal, that begins to be more conceptual and picking up the ideas, again, a lot from Zen, but also from... Taoism. There's a, a record of Paul Clay standing on a table in a cafe in Switzerland reading chapter 20 of the Tao Te Ching. And all of the surrealists and uh, his contemporaries there getting into a, a big discussion about it. And uh, the, I, I once had to uh, do a, a tour for a group of uh, from the Asian Museum in Oregon at the Metropolitan in New York of uh, George O'Keefe. And when I started reading about her work, the, the book she kept on her bedside table was called The Secret of the Golden Flower, Chinese Wisdom. And then from then I found that, you know, she was also, she and Stieglitz and that whole group was very much involved in reading and thinking and talking about uh, things in a in a very different way, kind of a, um, interconnected, holistic universe, and um, so it's uh, it's everywhere. <laughs> also, you were talking about the Western critics looking at this art and saying well, they're, they're rebelling and that that um, that seems to trivialize what these people are doing a lot when they say well they're just rebelling against that you always think of rebelling against something rather than really presenting us with a new experience and it, um, it can shut off people as viewers at coming to this art yeah, it, it really... Because people, you know, really trust, there's a kind of a trust every once in a while in art critics into you. Well, people also, there, there was, I, I could tell this in my students, I could hear their parents talking. Um, 
when they would say, you know, well, these artists are just trying to pull wool over our eyes and fake something and just because they want money. They want to sell it because you could you could just hear that, you know, the, the complete. And in fact, when I taught the survey, that's how this all started, the Transparent Thread Project, because I loved to teach. I did not want to write. I never, never wanted to write anything. <laughs> And I used to write for my students very elaborate notes because I not only did I know this because I knew a lot of the artists. I started out at UC Davis in fine arts and I experienced it. I, I experienced the process and, and the teaching by the artists who were up to here in, um, you know, practice and Zen and, and um, Taoism also. So when I went back east and I was teaching and I found that there, were, there was nothing I could give my students to read on 20th century art that contained any of this. So I used to write, you know, elaborate notes. Sometimes for each lecture I'd give like 10 pages of notes and references and comments and quotes and, uh, because I said, you know, this is like explaining contemporary art and giving somebody a recipe for bread and leaving out the yeast because it it really is if you you know if people don't see and of course once people begin not to trust that the artist has a sincere intention but their intention is some you know to to take you down some path uh well it is a path but <laughs> not the one that a lot of people think so um you know, the language becomes different. Everything becomes different. Um, that's why uh, an artist who taught at Davis for 25 years, Cornelia Schultz, who uh, sits at um, Spirit Rock, was one of the people I, I interviewed. And she said, uh, she's the one who said, well, you know, when you start practicing, it changes the way you tie your shoes. So it's likely to change your art. Mindfulness and you know, that, that was another uh, important factor for a lot of the artists in their process. Mindfulness, slowing down, you know, use of color. The, the, and a lot of them would say, you know, like Philip Gustin's quote, once I start thinking, forget it, I'm out, it's finished. <laughs> so it's not a thinking process. It makes me wonder about the critics, whether or not it's because they have an expectation of what they want to see or what they think it should be. And so this is a whole radical way, uh, I mean, it's a whole radical shift of paradigm, and they're still expecting it to be about object, and so that's why they're missing yeah. the message of... Yeah, that, that is true. And the other thing, uh, art history criticism is a very small world. And a few artists kind of set the stage and the pattern. I mean, a few art uh, critics and writers. And so, and especially in academia, you know, if you're going to stray from that, you got to have a lot of courage. So you just kind of repeat the party line. And... Um, it's, I, I have a very good friend, um, Yoshi Shimitsu, who teaches, he's a chaired professor at Princeton in Japanese art. And he started out life as a, as a visual artist. He hung out at the Cedar Bar with all of the abstract expressionists, with de Kooning and Pollock and Motherwell. And then he said, that after he had graduated from Harvard, he decided he was going to be an artist. And he went there and decided after a few years he wasn't going to make it. But he, you know, he was there, he witnessed it all, he knows, you know, what, but he doesn't write about it because, you know, it's just not, not something you do in, in that framework. And Sam Hunter, who uh, was a professor of contemporary art at Princeton, wrote a definitive book on, uh, in probably the 70s on the abstract expressionists. And didn't mention a word, not even one word or suggestion about Asian influence or Zen or anything. And 
I was ended up working on a curatorial project with him, and I asked him. I said, "Why, you know, why didn't you mention any of this?" Because we were talking, and he knew, because some of the artists talked to him about it. He said, "Well, very frankly, I didn't understand it." So, and you know, he was a very, very powerful person, and you didn't want to write something that he hadn't included in his interpretation, you know, and risk. Uh, Risk your career. Question? I was going to ask you, you mentioned that, that blue book, I forget the author's name. That oh, David Clark? Yeah. And when was that written? That was... 88, yeah. I see. So you mentioned that as an important piece in in this dialogue that we're having. And uh, I was wondering, you also mentioned that the effects of this revolution won't take place probably for 50, 100 years. Um, I just wanted, um, why do you feel it's going to take that long? Well, it kind of reminds me of a quote when I was uh, doing the research I read from Einstein. because, uh, you know, it's interesting. He said uh, it took people, you know, a hundred years or more to digest and understand uh, Newton's thinking of, you know, of, moder- of physics. Mm-hmm. And he said it'll probably take at least that long or if not more for people to understand relativity. And these artists are dealing with the exact same shift in paradigm and conceptual change. Uh, the artist will tell you, well, you know, the Buddha knew this a long time ago. And in fact, um, like Fritjof Capra's The Tao of Physics, yes. uh, you know, he'll say, like Einstein said, you know, it took, you know, it took us 2,500 years to come to seeing the, the conceptions of physics the way we have it now. But the... Um, the Buddhists went inside and they saw the universe the same way we're explaining it long before. Right. So, you know, the, the physicists, and I found that um, traveling around and talking to various people, and uh, David Hockney came to visit at Princeton and we had a couple of um, lectures that he did and he was hot in pursuit of these ideas about the connection between the Dharma and physics. And so we went over to the physics department and, you know, he was curious as to why this was the big question. Why, when one-point perspective was invented, and that was a major revolution in visual thinking and seeing in the Renaissance, that went over to China in the 17th century with the Jesuits. And yet, they didn't touch it. They weren't interested. They didn't pick it up. And David Hockney asked this one Chinese physicist, you know, why, why didn't they do that? You know, this was a way of seeing, you know, a, a different way. And he said, it's one point perspective, right? And we were in the garden in the back of the building and he looked around and he goes, how could there be only one point anywhere? And he said, obviously, they must have dismissed it as some Western trick and said they weren't interested. Because you, until contemporary times until photography you don't see one point perspective images in any other culture photography kind of spread it around but it's interesting because I think people that are raised in a different visual language and come in contact with photography relate to it very differently than we do because it's uh now, photogra- people who are using photography in art have to kind of make it stretch out of its boundaries. Of, and also that I think the artists of the Renaissance appreciated that um, when one-point perspective was first invented, and it was invented as a technique to put a dome over the Florence Cathedral by Brunelleschi, uh, the artists were so excited about it because they, it could give them a three-dimensional 
being on, you know, in their frescoes in, in the churches. And they were so excited in the beginning. And they, if you ever go to the Brancacci Chapel in Florence and you see Masaccio's work, you can almost feel the excitement because it's the very beginnings of using uh, the one-point perspective and the three-dimensional model. But then it only took about 40 years and they realized they were trapped in a box. And they tried, mannerism was the next ism that came along and then uh, the um, Baroque period. And it's all a struggle in a way to get out of that box because they'll push figures way back into deep space or they'll press their noses right against the front. The mannerist, you'll see a lot of portraits where the people are like, you know, almost pressing their nose against the glass. And they realize that literally the one point perspective formula is nice, you know, one or two times, but then it gets boring, gets very boring. And it's also not related to anything in the real world except a, you know, it is a trick. It's making you see three dimensions on a two-dimensional surface. So um, that's, it, it probably, um, it takes a long time for a developed, conditioned culture to change, to uh, no matter how many times change is used in the <laughs> political world. <laughs> and uh, how important do you think uh, Jung's, uh, was it man and his symbols or something like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was in this very, unfolding very, this whole thing. Yeah. Pollock um, especially uh, was in, involved with that book very much and he uh, shared a lot. There's a lot of... Um, of paperwork, uh, you know, uh, kind of reprints of, of interviews and discussions. There's a group in New York, it's called the Institute of Psychoanalytic Art, and it's at NYU, and they have gathered a lot of the information about Jung and, their, and his connection with all of the artists. I had a professor at uh, Maryland um, that uh, wrote a, an incredible book on Pollock and uh, he had he used a lot of that information so and and Pollock shared a lot of that with a lot of his colleagues that the t- the times then from what you know you can gather together by all the l- different letters artists wrote each other and and different um, different quotes that you see in papers and and books they were together almost all the time and they hung out at the Cedar Bar in New York and in San Francisco there were several places that they went and they had deep philosophical conversations and they and a lot of them then went into practice and so they share ideas um, it's a lot more difficult now for artists I think to um, have that kind of uh, so that you know one idea doesn't necessarily spread as fast as it as it did then. In your experience, have have you seen uh, artists that aren't formally trained, that are self-taught, that have an easier time of breaking that that mold? Yeah. Um, I'm asking that because I had no formal training before I got into watercolor, and I remember one of the first critiques was they said it was. Uh, the, the critique was a good one, but they called the, the art primitive. <laughs> I didn't have the formal training, but they, they saw it in more of a mythological mm-hmm. framework. Uh, it would, uh, they'd probably call a lot of the Zen master flung ink paintings very primitive. Uh-huh. <laughs> but no, I, that is true. Um, in fact, it's an interesting... Um, Phenomenon that um, a group of uh, uh, of us talked about this um, several years ago in in terms of art history and looking at art. But artist training before the 60s was done in art schools, and it wasn't, you know, it was it was very different. It was really more experiential and and. Uh, very close to the the medium and the source, but there weren't 
there weren't a lot of philosophical overlays over the art. And it wasn't until the art schools went into universities that things changed. That, um, and in fact, when you talk about formal training, that was one of the things also, it's a, it's a ma- it was a major shift in teaching within the university art schools when people like Robert Arneson and John Baldessari and uh, Mark Rothko and these people um, began and made their shift in their thinking and they were teaching students in a very different way, they would say about formal training, throw it out. It's like if you see the Buddha on the road, kill him. And they would say that. They would use that example. Because I remember one time I got into a class with Roland Peterson in uh, in UC Davis. And he said, um, I did a a painting and it was a a fairly representational painting. It was a fairly large one of a a kind of a, a Mexican sitting in front of a stucco wall with a big sombrero and there was a blue sky on top and there was an airplane in the distance and my my message, my young naive student message was, you know, the clash of cultures, the difference between, you know, the the, the kind of organic person of the soil and here's an airplane going by and I brought it in and it was about a four by four foot oil painting and I and he goes, that'll sell. And I said, what does that mean? He goes, that's the worst criticism you could get in this class. <laughs> so, you know, throw that out. Throw all those ideas out. And uh, so it, it, it really changes. Um, there's, there's, you know, a double-edged sword. It's like um, it, it, when you have university-educated artists as opposed to artists that are trained in... Uh, either an apprenticeship or in an art school, then they have to take math and science and English and poetry and, you know, the, the, the courses that at least they used to have to take from the, the regular curriculum. Um, and so you have a different, a different mind to start working on the art. And that also may have contributed to uh, the spreading of these of the ideas of the Dharma because for instance Cornelia Schultz takes her students for a weekend retreat at Spirit Rock before the class starts and uh, and I know a lot of teachers who will have their students sit and explain in just beginning terms the whole idea of meditation um, and really begin to start to work it and so that the then the critique of the work becomes very different and the person looking at the work it's interesting because you know formal training um these days is is really a slippery concept it can be dangerous (laughs) so it's like you know trusting trusting and this is what all of the artists, all of the artists said that these uh, kind of these conceptions and these notions did for them was release them from any of those ideas and free them to be themselves. I, I imagine there's uh, some artists in the room and have had the same experience of getting to a point of almost ripping up the painting and then just breaking through and saying, well, wow, I was ready to give up, and, and just that process. And that was something. probably, according to Philip Gustin, the moment you left. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if you have, like, expectations and you, have, you want something to be a certain way and it's not looking the way you want it to be, yeah. and then you're about to give up and something happens. And that breakthrough is you didn't do it. It happened, and you recognized it. That's what Franz Klein was talking about his work. His work, he said, if it was art, the art wasn't in the doing of it. It was in the recognizing mm-hmm. that the, you know, the, the point. The other thing that um, often happens uh, to me, and, and you might try it sometimes, something that you're really ready to throw away, put it in the drawer for a couple months. Take it out again, and you might be very surprised. 
it's really interesting when uh, because again like Rauschenberg said you you're different it's different because you're different and you see totally different things in it different different potential thank you are we uh, ready to go paint <laughs> oh yes <laughs> pardon the contemporary music Oh, the flute. Oh, yes. Where by the painting, um, if we can, um, what what I was thinking might work. This is all fluid, in flux, kind of. Um, is that um, the process of flung ink is to sit for a while, and then take the brush and fling the ink and. Um, I was thinking that if Nancy could play during that time of sitting, then right after you finish will be um, my kind of cue to start painting. And then I, I don't know if you're if you're um, interested in this, but I was thinking that um, after I do three or four paintings, you could look at one and and see if anything suggests something and you could respond in sound to the the painting just spontaneous that's very zen <laughs> of course we're in a Theravada center but that's okay <laughs> because we have eastern serenity <laughs> the, yeah <laughs> 